What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. little public service announcement. Um, If you didn't listen last week, I am currently participating in a lecture roundtable rewatch of Batman the Animated Series. So to all of my listeners in the Philadelphia area, this is going to be happening at Moore College in Philadelphia. If you Google it, you can find it. Um, It's also on my Facebook. We'll be sharing it from the Midnight Myth Facebook This upcoming Sunday, the 15th, I'll be taking part in the roundtable. Sunday following the 21st, I will be the keynote speaker um, at it. So that should be a lot of fun. We're talking a lot of cool things, Batman and Batman the Animated Series. If you're a kid that kind of grew up in the 90s who liked nerd culture and who liked Batman, I'm sure you've seen it. If you're an adult who missed it, Who wants to go back and learn about Batman? Whole thing's on Amazon Prime if you're an Amazon Prime member. Yeah, and these are awesome rewatch series that uh, Derek and some of his cohorts do, hosted by Beth Heinley. They are just really fabulous, fun, sort of uh, really nerdy. I was going to say, they're not my cohorts. I am a cohort. Yeah, you are a cohort. Yeah, I'm led, not the leader. Yeah, but this is the third one that they have done as a group, uh, including a Buffy the Vampire Slayer rewatch and a Battlestar Galactica rewatch. And they really delve into some of the roots and some of the influences and some of the really smart stuff going on below the surfaces of our favorite shows. So kind of like what we do here on The Midnight Myth, but you get to be part of the conversation. So if that sounds fun to you, the event is free. So wait, hold on. What's that price again, Laurel? It's free 99 free. There's, if you're in the Philly area, definitely check it out. I can attest that these are, are super, super fun. Yeah. And we'll be doing them every Sunday for the rest of the month. But if there's only one Sunday that you can come, come to the one where I'm the keynote speaker. (laughs) Come to Derek's lecture. It's going to be really cool. Sunday, the 21st, it's at 1 PM. Again, we'll tweet and Facebook it all out. Um, but Anyway, thanks for that public service announcement and me plugging uh, the opportunity for people to come see me live. Yeah. Yeah. Clap, clap, claw, see me live. Um, That kind of inspired us for this week's topic because I've been diving really deep and really hard into everything and all things Batman. Yeah. And it got us thinking, we did an entire episode on the Joker, but we haven't really done a 
Batman episode. Right. And this seems almost like an oversight on our parts. Please be assured that it's not an oversight. It's that we didn't even know where to start with Batman because he's, as a figure, looms so large over pop culture and looms so large over contemporary story storytelling that it was almost hard to find a window to the way in. But tonight we're going to give a, a big overview of Batman of a character and then zero in on one particular rendition of him that we find really indicative of where he stands in our culture today. Well, yeah, I mean, overview of Batman, even like like super, super brief, because he's been around since I'm blanking on his first comic, which was a long-ass time Detective ago. Detective Comics number 27? Are you making that up? Or no, are you I saying think that that's with really what it is, yeah. <laughs> you said that in a way where like you wanted me to confirm it. I, don't I remember, honestly don't know. I don't remember the number, but that's what it was. Well, long story short, I would say that since the late 80s through today, Batman has emerged as the quintessential pop culture hero, the most um, commercially successful uh, superhero, and something that has emerged into a phenomenon um, unlike anything else in the superhero genre. And if you've listened to previous episodes the superhero genre, which has now become a thing, the superhero genre, that could be a whole podcast episode that superheroes used to yeah. just be comics. Now it's an entire genre of everything. Right. But Batman really is the commercial leader um, in the respect that he's the most popular. And since he's the most popular, he makes the most money. Since he makes the most money, they do the most Batman things. And hence he gets more and more and more Batman everywhere we go. And I think the real question that I have tonight that I'd like to postulate is why Batman? What about this hero makes him the most popular, the most uh, forefront of our minds? When we think of a superhero movie, when we think of a superhero comic, we think of the thing that everybody loves and is celebrating, whether you're the like hardcore geeks like myself and the people at the Batman, the animated series rewatch, where you're just a lay person that likes good entertainment. Like, you know who Bruce Wayne is, you know yeah. who the Joker is, you know, his backstory. How did that happen? And why? It's a super interesting question. And I think one of the reasons why it's intriguing to ask, why is Batman so popular with us is because Batman is not the, uh, is not the, superhero that you think of when you think of superhero. He may be the first one that pops into your mind, but he doesn't have any supernatural powers. He is essentially a man with a lot of resources and a lot of wit and intelligence. And he also is a, a man playing in a lot of moral ambiguities that most uh, superheroes that we hold up as real monuments are not. He's not Superman. And that's why we, uh, of course, see B uh, Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, the movie that we don't speak of. Uh, you just spoke of it, though. Yeah, and I apologize for speaking of it. but uh, Oh, it's not that bad. It was pretty bad. Um, but, uh, it's not good. But I'm we, sorry, we I'm, hold I'm totally up those, derailing you. We hold up those figures as, you know, the, the one that is uh, really stands for this unwavering moral compass and this shining light of freedom that is America. And then this more complicated, more complex, more interesting and darker figure that is Batman. And so that's why I'm excited to kind of delve into why he is so interesting to us. And we'll cover as much as we can tonight. Yeah. And I've had this like working theory in the back of my mind that many of the most famous superheroes 
that we can see in film, TV, and comic. Um, in particular, the really quintessential ones, the ones that have been going on for decades after decades. They kind of have their roots in classical, you know, heroism. You know, they have a little bit of tragedy in them in terms of their backstory, in terms of their flaw. They always have a flaw. Right. But they're all in all pretty perfect except for that flaw. Yeah, they're much more Grecian uh, in in influence. They're they're like Achilles, who is a perfect soldier, but goddamn that heel. Usually it's hubris that undoes the uh, the Greek soldiers, but a facet of that hubris is usually what we see as the major flaws in our superheroes today, rather than a really complex, twisted moral landscape of their minds. Or even, you know, Superman, who is a, essentially a demigod, a little piece of his home, you know, made its way to Earth. And those little pieces of home, kryptonite, have now become synonymous with weakness. Right. And your weakness, what is my weakness? It is my kryptonite. So, like, whatever your weakness is, you can be like, oh, you know, I can deal with anything, but my kryptonite is blank. You know, superheroes typically have that roots, and I would say that Batman, to me, represents the break from that tradition, a clean break, and the now formation of the true Americana hero. And I think Batman starts to uh, reinvent the narrative in a new way, of what it means to be the perfect superhero, which means a deeply, deeply, deeply flawed. Oh yeah. You know, like like deeply disturbed as an individual and very, very dark and always on the precipice of true madness, but knowing that line and always being able to stay just right to madness, like one step left and Batman is now in the mad. But one step right, he stays in the sane. And I think we really owe some very ingenious comic writers who were able to take a character who was stoked in camp and reimagine him as what we now call the Dark Knight. And I'd say since he's become the Dark Knight, Batman has just seeped into our collective consciousness in a very unique way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the Dark Knight was a, a term coined by uh, the 1986 comic. Is that right? Correct, 1986 by, by Frank Miller, which is one of the the biggest uh, source uh, sources that we're going to use tonight for reference and the evolution of Batman. Uh, the Dark Knight was the the title, of course, but it, it came out in the 80s in the midst of the Cold War uh, and showed sort of a shifting focus in Batman comics toward a darker, more uh, more morally complex uh, exploration of who Batman was as a character, what his motivations are, and really transformed him into this allegory for American justice that he hadn't necessarily had before in such a uh, an obvious way. Uh, we, of course, see the events of this comic parallel the events of the Cold War, even fictionalized events of the Cold War. And watching them today, I found it... Uh, we watched the uh, the animated uh, film version of this, and I found myself watching this thinking, oh, God, this is also Charlottesville. This is, uh, you know, this is everything that I'm seeing today. Um, so there's a really timeless element to the politics of it and to the exploration of justice. I think uh, I need to know a little bit more when you're saying that you're thinking it was Charlottesville. Do you mean 
the neo-Nazis trying to tear down the statues of recent Charlottesville or was that like, is that what you were referring to or? Um, and we'll back up a little bit and talk uh, a little more I'm about just the, the plot, but what, where I was coming from were the, uh, the mutant gang suddenly becoming the um, sons of Batman and the media pressuring Batman to make a statement condemning their acts of violence in his name reminded me a lot of uh, our president. Interesting. Yeah. You really like the dark Knight as Batman, as the, the dark Knight Frank Miller's Batman as, the bad guy, don't you? I uh, I don't I don't know. I'm still working through my ideas of it, but it it was hard for me to watch that. Even though it was a story from 1986, it was hard for me to watch that without making those parallels. Um, and I think that's something that Batman has has always done is made you think about the politics of your your environment and the justice of your environment. Interesting. Anyway, I think we might be putting the cart before the horse here yes, a little bit. Yes, for sure. I definitely think we should back up and give a little context first. Yeah, it was just a, an interesting like parallel, one that I was not at all prepared for. Yeah, and, like, a delicious rabbit hole that you couldn't help jumping yeah, down. Yeah, it was just like, whoa, wait a minute, what? Huh? Okay, anyway. Um, so let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about the story that rebranded Batman from the more Adam Westian, uh, campy, can do no wrong detective superhero that works with the cops and everybody loves to this more of the swinging sixties. Yes. To this more menacing, um, you know, kind of on the the verge of madness hero called the dark Knight. So Frank Miller has done a ton of comics. Uh, if you're a fan of the movie 300, that's based off of one of his comics. Um, and yeah, he is regarded as one of the, uh, writers that has helped, propel comics out of the murky just for kids into a more serious adult medium. Yeah. He's a heavyweight for sure. In graphic novels. Sure. And not without like problems and debates and controversies. Um, but the dark Knight takes place with Batman in retirement at the age of 55, watching Gotham plunge into deeper and deeper, um, violence as a criminal gang called the mutants, is taking like more and more control over the city. And eventually Batman just decides I can't take it anymore. I'm the dark Knight, and I have to return. And he starts fighting back. There are lots of also beautiful subplots. There's a subplot with um, Harvey Dent who gets facial reconstructive surgery. He's finally no longer a man with two faces. He is one face and he looks like a regular dude. However, he can only see himself as a monster. So he has to then continue to be a villain, even though they had supposedly cured him. And all throughout the Dark Knight, there's a constant debate to like the fundamental judicial veracity of Batman. Yeah. Whether or not what he's doing is good. There's a character that is constantly arguing that Batman creates villains because he is there there must be villains to challenge him and that Batman is a social and psychological disease himself. And as Batman comes back, so does the Joker who was pretty much in an insane asylum living like a vegetable. And as soon as Batman is back, then the Joker comes back. Yeah. Because Batman is his raison d'etre. The moment that we first see him, like that spark of recognition in the Joker's face that he remembers who he is and why he, why he does what he does, what makes him tick. He says, Batman, darling. 
it just comes back to life in that moment. So it really is this piece of evidence for that Batman creating the obstacles for Gotham and for himself. Absolutely. In this narrative, Batman, by the way, we're going to spoil the fuck out of it if you haven't figured that out. <laughs> we always um, do. But but seriously, if you're a fan of Batman and you haven't read this or uh, the actual Warner Brothers animated movie does really good justice to it as well. Yeah. Uh, it's a two-parter, so it's like two and a half hours long. Um, you know, go to your local comic book shop, your Comixology app, or however you, you rent or watch movies. Check it out. We will be spoiling it. Um, so long story short, Batman finally goes head to head with the Joker and fucking murders him. Yeah. He kills him pretty violently in the tunnel of love. Absolutely. At, in a, you know, amusement park. Yeah. All of this eventually builds to where Superman and Batman have to battle. You know, because Superman is still working for the government. The government can't have a superhero. So they're like, eventually they ask Superman to put Batman down and Batman and Superman battle in which Batman beats Superman. And uh, then Batman goes into hiding, fakes his own death and goes into hiding. And then from there starts sort of training the next generation of Batmans in the Batcave. Yeah. And... The whole thing is this this complex web of, you know, if you have the power to stop a horrible crime from happening, you know, should you? And if you do, what is the the social capital and cost to that social capital? So, like, if I stop a violent crime from happening, am I creating a worse violent crime by doing it? Right. And if I am, haven't I done something wrong? Or am I going to inspire others to want to stop crime. And if I want to inspire others to stop crime, have we not stopped all crime? And then other questions like what causes crime are a big part of it. And which Batman is one actor who eventually, you know, decides I'm going to fight crime because that's what I am and that's who I am. And I can't let crime happen without, you know, actively stopping it, but it's never really clear. And it's never really clear whether Batman's in the right I mean, you just heard Laurel almost argue that Batman was a Nazi. Yeah. You know, which I don't agree with that interpretation, but I can certainly understand the that dark line, no pun intended, with the Dark Knight Returns, and why one might walk away and be like, Batman's kind of the bad guy here, isn't he? It's possible to take that interpretation. Yeah. Um, and we, of course, tonight are arguing that the Dark Knight... Um, uh, the Frank Miller comic really represented a tonal shift for Batman and then represented a moral shift for Batman as well. And what's followed is a pretty, um, pretty significant uh, legacy of sort of ambivalent uh, attempts to answer this question. And when I say ambivalent, I'm not, um, I'm not disparaging the, uh, the forthcoming um, adaptations of the Batman story. I do not disparage for the most part, the Christopher Nolan films. I think they're pretty excellently executed. Um, But in the end, the stories are more concerned with presenting these moral questions and these questions of justice to you. Uh, They're more interested in doing that and asking as many questions as possible than necessarily answering them. So Batman still exists to us today as a character who is debatable, a character who is full of questions and who, the writers and the um, the artists and the actors don't necessarily take a stand and say whether or not 
he is truly in the right or represents a shift for uh, American politics that is potentially dangerous. That's how I feel, at least. I don't know. Wow. Um, it's tough for me to come up with an immediate response to that. I mean, I and think that was a very dense statement. Cogitate on that too. So, I don't agree at all in the in the respect that. I think everyone who writes Batman, their intention is to write Batman as a hero and not as a villain. I don't know if that's where you were going. Um, and I think, oh, go ahead. I don't think anyone intentionally writes Batman as the villain because it's impossible to see a Batman story or to read a Batman story and not think that's the hero of my narrative. But I think uh, whereas earlier iterations of Batman than, than the one we're talking about tonight we're more interested in just putting him up as this sort of campy superhero who always, uh, you know, beats the bad guy. I think writers today are more interested in continuing to hold a mirror up to society and say, hey, there is some stuff about this that's potentially extremely shady. Make sure you are examining, uh, you know, the, the people that you put your faith in and looking below the surface because there's some shit that hides in the shadows. See, I don't get that from The Dark Knight Returns at all. Because Batman wins in every way, right? Like so, I think the 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 moral argument about the Dark Knight, you know, returns is that if you have the power to do something, you need to do it, and that when you, it's more about a individualistic approach to justice as opposed to a collective. And I think it makes that argument pretty clearly that Batman is in the right. What do you do when? every single social institution crumbles and fails and isn't capable of solving the problems of the day. Eventually a Batman needs to emerge, right? Ooh, I feel like that's super dangerous because it puts the, um, it, I, oh, go ahead. It, it puts the stakes of an entire society and an entire world in the hands of one person with a conviction, which I think can be really scary. I, I'm not saying that that's a place we want to be. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm just saying, that is absolutely, to me, the argument of that show. It is not in... So, yes, in many ways it tries to hold up a mirror. I agree with you there. But the idea that they're saying, you know, be careful about who you put your faith in and using Batman as that person to be careful of, to me, I think, is not the intention of, of that at all. I don't think they're warning you for, for putting your faith into Batman because at the end of the day, Batman's left standing... The sons of Batman are left standing. The, 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 the legacy of Batman continues. Those that put their faith in Batman are rewarded, uh, not punished. At, you know, whereas, at, you know, I think it's more about, you know, the mirror is like, look at how fragile our social institutions are. And I don't think anyone would say we need to be in a place where uh, we all should have Batman save us or we're all going to kill each other as an argument like, that's where we want society to be. It, to me, it kind of sounds like you're putting your place now in America into that oh, rather yeah. than no, saying sure. what that says. I will absolutely admit that I'm watching this. I had never read uh, The Dark Knight. I had never seen The Dark Knight Returns um, prior to this viewing. And so I am absolutely infusing my contemporary uh, prejudices and my contemporary uh uh, perspectives on this viewing. Um, but I think that creates sort of an interesting conflict in my own mind as someone who really loves Batman as a character and wanted to see 
uh, you know, the sort of blossoming of this different um, different focus for him. Um, but it's it's impossible for me to uh, uncouple that experience from uh, my own sort of right. development of understanding of how the world and governments work. Because if Batman were really about fascism, if you were right, Batman is about fascism and arguing for fascism, arguing for just one person with one rule, with absolute moral conviction, and anybody that gets out of line should get smacked. If that's what it was arguing about society, it would not be the most popular superhero. It just wouldn't work. Right. And and what I'm saying is that I don't think any any of these portrayals of him are arguing that. I think, though, that in general, they're not necessarily arguing the opposite. I think that there is still, especially in the Nolan adaptations, I think there is still sort of a, a teetering edge where um, Nolan sows the seeds of doubt in that story, in our our understanding of that character. Uh, one of those examples being, of course, how in um, the second installment, in The Dark Knight, Batman gets what he wants, but he does so by compromising, you know, privacy, by intruding on people's private um, information. So uh, like a clearly fascistic move that allows him to achieve what he wants, but we hear the slippery slope argument just in the back of our head, you know, at what cost? Sure. I'm not sure where your headspace is and where, where we're, where we're going right now. I don't either. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to get to what I want to talk about tonight. Yeah. No, no this worries. Was a slippery slope. <laughs> yeah, this was. So I, I, I feel like, we started with wanting to examine why Batman was popular and we're now in a point where I feel like I'm defending Batman. Yeah. And, and, and I'm and, not trying to attack Batman. Yeah. Um. And, and, and so it, cause all right. So just to put all cards on the table, right. We here at the midnight myth don't hold back in our podcast. You know, America is in a dark spot politically right now. If you are at all sympathetic with the left progressive or liberal agenda, Sure, it really is. And we're seeing the rise of ultra-right. That doesn't mean that's what Batman's about, though. No, right? I agree. That's why I'm coming forward and, and, and saying and that's how I'm watching this. Christopher Nolan interjecting um, abu Batman abusing technology was instantly juxtaposed with Lucius Fox to make a clear argument against it, as opposed to saying... Batman's doing this and it's okay because he's using it to get the Joker. They have an actual whole scene dedicated to debating whether him using that, if you've seen the Dark Knight at the end, Batman turns everyone's cell phone into a radar, uh, sonar, radar device to find the Joker. Lucius Fox literally is just like, this is wrong. This is dangerous. This is not okay. I'm not comfortable. If this machine is here, you know, I'm not. I will uh, leave you and leave Wayne Enterprises. And Batman convinces him, hey, can you do it this this one time? I will then give you this machine to do with what you want. And Batman even recognizes how dangerous it is, but is saying, like, you know, in this one instance, I have to do it. Beyond that, destroy it. At the end, we see the machine, Lucius Fox destroying the machine. So I think it it makes an argument of, like, high moral complexity about... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but not not fascist, you know, like, you know, if Batman and Lucius Fox were fascists, 
right? Batman would like, you know, I'm going to use this machine and I'm going to stop all crime. And then you would like slowly build to almost like a, if you've ever seen the movie minority report level where people are arrested for crimes before they commit, you know, to me, it's more like to give a historical context, Batman making a sort of Abe Lincoln um, who suspended the writ of habeas corpus, which is a law, a, you know, a philosophy of American justice that you can't hold people without trial. It's built into our constitution as a right for all humans, regardless of whether they're Americans, all people should have habeas corpus. You can't hold without trial. He suspended that in Maryland to keep Maryland from seceding from the union. And that's a terrible, horrible thing that he did. And then as soon as the war was over, he reinstated habeas corpus and let everyone out. I feel like now whether or not it was right for Batman to use cell phones to find the Joker is as debatable as to whether or not Abraham Lincoln was right to suspend habeas corpus. But what you can't argue is the noble intent behind it versus a fascist who does not have that noble intent, right? Would develop these things specifically to abuse. Whereas Batman did not develop this to abuse. He developed it specifically to find, you know, his ultimate enemy in the dark Knight, which would be the Joker. So I think to me, it's very anti-fascist in that moment, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that. I completely hear that. I think more of what the the argument that I'm trying to make here is that these kinds of questions never would have existed in the swinging sixties Batman, you know, Oh, very true. These questions would never have been asked before 1986. Right. Uh, And so in that way, Batman is a reflection of our own uh, maturity as a nation and the maturity of the people reading those comics. Um, And, and he evolves kind of with us as our moral questions and our questions of justice become more complex as we look deeper into the motivations behind the people who lead us and as we try to understand more about the world around us. True. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's segue. As I know... Segue. Yeah, I, we don't normally call out our segues, but let's segue because I feel like we're in, a, we're in a deep rabbit hole here. <laughs> um, so let's back up. It was a I know good you, rabbit hole, though. Yeah. Yeah, I know you had a really interesting theory that you wanted to bring to the table about the. Um, I'll, I'll just let you take it away. Yeah. Um, in exploring the question of why Batman, uh, I kind of wanted to zoom out and get in the time machine for a little bit because uh, my understanding of Batman and my like introduction to Batman is very different than Derek's. I was not someone who read comic books as a kid um, and I really didn't get into Batman like like very much. I didn't know Bruce Wayne's backstory until the Christopher Nolan movies came out. Uh, and now I love Lego Batman more than anything in the world and I am really enjoying this Batman the Animated Series rewatch, but it's all kind of happening backwards for me. So I'm consuming Batman from Christopher Nolan backwards, if that makes any sense. Um, whereas Derek, I'm pretty sure, was a fan from the very beginning. Detective Comics number 27. You were you were already 30 years old, and I'm kidding. You're not that old. No, I mean for me, it was Tim Burton. Tim Burton's Batman, then yeah. to Batman the Animated Series, then to comics. That's yeah. how it went, and yeah. then back into TV and film. Absolutely. Um, and I kid. You're not. You're not an old man. 
Um, no, that's true. I am. <laughs> but we sort of had a very different introduction to this character. Um, and I wanted to sort of bring my own, um, my own expertises to the table in understanding why Batman resonates so much with us. Uh, and, and not just Batman himself, but the landscape that Batman exists in. Uh, something that has always struck me in any way that I consume these stories is that one of the main and most interesting characters to me is Gotham herself. Uh, the the landscape, the cityscape of Gotham is as menacing as the Joker to me, is as scary and is as atmospheric as anything I have ever encountered and, and is more specific, I think, than most um, most settings in most stories, right? We we all have an image that comes to our mind when we hear Gotham, even just from the name itself. Uh, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about tonight were some of the genre influences on the Batman mythologies. Um, and the, the very first one that I wanted to explore actually comes from my understanding of Gotham and the name of Gotham, and that's Gothic literature and Gothic horror. Um, so when I say the word gothic, you might have a couple of things come to mind. You might think of um, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. You might think of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Or you might think of people dressed in black on the street with black lipstick and nail polish um, who pretend that they're vampires. Uh, and that's no disparagement of goths because I was a goth for a long time and I think their style is awesome. Um, but what I'm going to talk about mostly is that middle one, the, um, the gothic genre of literature and storytelling and art that uh, was formed in the Victorian era. Yeah. Now, this all stems primarily from a style of architecture um, called neo-gothic. Now, actual Gothic architecture is like Notre Dame Cathedral, and that is medieval. Uh, and it's characterized typically by extremely uh, decorative, intricate designs, um, characteristics like flying buttresses and uh, pointed archways, and a sort of geometric quality that is medieval. Can I give a fun, like, historical interlude? Please do. Do you know why and where the term goth comes, oh, the, comes the, or came the from? Oh, the goths, they're, uh, you, you do it, you do it. So there is a a tribe of um, ancient Germans, so they spoke the Germanic languages before there was Germany as a nation, called the Visigoths. And they were largely responsible for doing a lot of things. Um, the, the Visigoths and like the Vandals, uh, if you recognize the word vandalism. So they were responsible for things like, you know, dismantling the Western Roman Empire and ushering nice. in... The Just medieval era and building nice the hobby. Yes, absolutely. You know, carving up Rome and being like, yes, it's finally mine and building the uh, castles and gargoyles and things that we consider as like the medieval Gothic became the term based upon the tribe, the Visigoths. Amazing. Just because I'm a history nerd. Yeah. So that's Gothic. Um, and now Neo-Gothic originates really from, like I said, the Victorian era. And a really good example of Neo-Gothic uh, style and architecture is like Tower Bridge in London. So it looks medieval. It's got that decorative sort of intricate flair. It looks like it could blend perfectly in with a Notre Dame or um, with some of the medieval buildings in the Tower of London nearby. However, it's actually something that was created in like the 
18th century or the 19th century. I forget the dates exactly, um, but well, we it's made you. to blend in with those because there was a resurgence in this love of this intricate decorative architecture. Now, this bled into landscape architecture as well, which created this um, this trend in England especially where the gardens that people once had that were so geometric and beautiful and, and manicured like the uh, gardens at Versailles that were this neoclassical, uh, suddenly people were redesigning them as Gothic landscapes. So they would be overgrown with vines and ivy and there would be sometimes fake ruins put in because the sort of beauty of decay was this kind of sublime thing that people wanted as an eye catcher in their garden. So it was a landscape that was overly emotional and romantic. And then a, a genre of... Which is exactly what I think about when I think of Batman is a landscape that's... Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I'll get there. Oh, I have no doubt. So a genre of literature comes out of this... Um, the first actual Gothic novel is The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, which is like everything you imagine when you think of Gothic literature. It's like long candlelit hallways. It's like falling down castles. It's extremely over-emotional, melodramatic romance and supernatural elements. And this just creepy atmosphere that suffuses everything. And this turns into... Uh, gothic horror. So we get Frankenstein, we get Jekyll and Hyde, we get one of my favorite examples of gothic uh, literature, which is The Hound of the Baskervilles from Sherlock Holmes. And the characteristics of this are that mise-en-scene, that diffuse atmosphere of like pleasurable fear. It's creepy, but we like it. And this allowed the Victorian people to sort of experience pleasure on a new level. Now, how this translates to Batman is the, the influence of that mise-en-scene, that atmosphere on Gotham, I think is so, so powerful in every iteration I have seen of Batman, where it's not only that the landscape itself feels alive, the city itself feels like a character, but the city feels like a cross-section of Batman's own conflicted mind, right? Now, Gothic storytelling was expressionistic. And we talked about the difference between impressionism and expressionism on a previous podcast. But uh, essentially, expressionism was viewing the world filtered through your own you know, madness or your own emotions, your own emotions coming out and influencing the world around you. Now, Gotham is a place that is Batman. It's the inside of Batman out, right? And even in the style of Gotham that we've seen in Batman the Animated Series, in The Dark Knight Returns, less so in the Nolan, but definitely in the Burton films, is Art Deco. And sometimes neo-Gothic in that there are um, gargoyles and like big tall towers, but Art Deco sometimes pulls from the delicate, geometric, intricate details of neo-Gothic architecture. So I think even in the visual style, Gotham carries that Gothic influence. Now, I mentioned Sherlock Holmes, The Hound of the Baskervilles before. Um, you can go back and listen to our third episode, Detected, where we really get into Sherlock Holmes. 
But I find Sherlock Holmes to be an incredible influence on Batman as a character because he is the quintessential detective, um, of course. But what has been really interesting to me to see in the development of Batman and the sort of pop culture uh, offerings of today is that the Sherlock that we get on the BBC show feels very influenced by Batman and the Joker to me. So it sort of becomes this infinity loop of influence uh, that, that comes from this, this source. It's like Sherlock Holmes influences Batman, influences Sherlock Holmes, influences Batman, and on and on and on forever. And I think there's a lot of things about that in the Batman tales. Yeah, I think that's a very, very interesting point. Um, I don't have a lot of side comment or debate with that. I think that was pretty cool. Um, I don't know if we're any closer to answering the question of why Batman is popular. Well, my point in all of this is that Batman is an intertextual figure, right? So anytime we see Batman, uh, we not only see what's on the screen before us and the story that's being told about him now, but we track every single time we've ever seen Batman before. So when I look at the the um, world of Gotham and Lego Batman, I also see the Nolan films. I also see the Burton films. I also see the animated series. Uh, and I think that these genres like um, like Gothic horror and Gothic, Gothic literature and the visual style of Art Deco, and even, of course, the uh, the style of film noir add to these layers of intertextuality that live within Batman. So every time we see him, we see all of that. We see all of that history that just really, really uh, resonates with us. And you think that's why he's so popular? I think that's a, a big part of it. It's very interesting. I've never considered Batman from the lens of intertextuality. The fact that he brings so many other... Um, you know, literary, film, stylistic uh, references and influences, and that that's part of why he's popular. I tend to agree with you. I think you made a really strong argument, and like, kind of, kind of blown away because it's. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard that argument about Batman before. Yeah, well, I think he really, truly is like the perfect uh, study for the Midnight Myth because he embodies so much of what we talk about, which are universal themes and motifs and storytelling. But I would also submit that I think as, as right as you are, I feel like that's only one part of the puzzle, right? Oh, of course. Cause I think no one consciously says I love Batman because of his intertextuality, you know? Yeah. You know, people express love for Batman on a lot of different levels in a lot of ways. A lot of like, oh, he's awesome, he's great. He is sort of uh, cloaked in this mythology that stands apart from other heroes and other types of heroes. And I think, to me, you can't discount the fact that he sort of has this both not everyday man and everyday man. And the yeah. fact that like he exists in a universe where beings from space can wield godlike power and he can contend with them as he does yeah. in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight as he defeats Superman in a battle. Super badass, yeah. You know, at, at the climax of that comic book, Superman and him finally come to blows. Batman defeats him without a single superpower, just with cunning, intelligence, and strategy. And I think that element gives this idea that all of us could potentially be a Batman. And I think it feeds 
the Americana, the idea that pull yourself up off of your bootstraps. If you are smart enough and capable enough, you too can defeat a demigod from space. Oh my God. Yeah. And I think that's part of it. So I think you nailed the aesthetic. Yes. Yeah. Right. I think you really like home run hit. This is the aesthetic of Batman and why it works so well. And I think the other part is why the hero. And I think because he represents this Americanness. Um, <clears throat> total side plot to why Batman is so awesome and so <laughs> powerful. Um, and so like, you know, ingrained in our collective consciousness. Why do you think darkness? Now I think you answered in part of it with the gothicness that the aesthetic of darkness yeah. has an appeal, but you don't really see that anywhere else when you think of American heroes. Right. Yeah. Why do you think it's because what, why does it have to be so fucking bleak? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, and I, I do think that Excuse me. all of the heroes that really stick with us that we keep making movies about, I'm talking, you know, all of the, the heavy hitters with Marvel, I'm talking Superman, I'm talking Spider-Man, um, Captain America, of course, are in a way an allegory for some type of Americana and Batman, uh, Batman reaches down into this sort of darkness. And I think the Dark Knight Returns is, a, is, again, a really interesting thing that we're examining because at least in my experience with Batman, it was the first time that it really grounded his story in like super concrete real world conflict. Even though it was sort of uh, fictionalizing the conflict of the Cold War, it was absolutely steeping the viewers and the readers in... Um, in, in what was going on around them and then sort of mythologizing it with this American animus that is, uh, you know, sort of the culmination of, uh, you know, an aspirational individualistic, uh, you know, taking, taking justice in your own hands kind of figure who also has a really dark past. Uh, so I think there is an element of, of Americana that we were missing in the really like, apple pie Superman guys, right? Right. And, and the apple pie Superman, Captain America's, they're also great too. Absolutely. And they kind of had their heyday. Like for a long time, Superman was the hero. Spider-Man was the hero. Spider-Man kind of still is the hero. Yeah. Spider-Man's my favorite. You know, Spider-Man I think is right under uh, Batman in terms of popularity from just raw revenue yeah, and underwear sales. Uh, yeah, yeah. Underwear sales and, you know, toy sales. I don't know why underwear sales is a thing. But anyway. Underoos. Oh, I got, I get it now. Well done. That reference went right over my head. <laughs> um, but I think we are also in the age of the anti-hero. Yeah, and for I think sure. The ascendancy of Batman is one of the starting points where we are looking for <clears throat> us nerds, us geeks, us story lovers. We're looking for tortured. We're looking for... Heroes that aren't conventional. I mean, so in the comic book genre, you have Batman really emerging as this darker, more anti-hero, still like a hero in every sense of the, the, the word. And then we see characters like in the comics, like Wolverine, Punisher, Deadpool, Ghost Rider, all of these other like heroes that aren't perfect, that aren't nice human beings, that are deeply flawed, that are like walking the line between hero and villain and sometimes cross the line. Like Deadpool has been a villain. Um, you know, Ghost Rider is a possessed spirit. 
at Punisher just straight up slaughters people. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so you have all of these heroes that follow this sort of Batman mold of this tortured anti-hero. And I wonder when we look at the mirror and ask ourselves the question, why do we like this? And it seeped out of comics into everything. Yeah, it's it's why the postmodern. Like it? It's the postmodern and post postmodern perspective, and the comic books really absorbed that in the way that it started to portray its heroes. It did that with Watchmen. But I think as postmodern consumers, we are obsessed with uh, complexity and we're obsessed with duality, um, which. Well, Batman has no duality. Um, but. Sarcastically, right? In <laughs> yeah. case you can't see her face as I can, Batman how sarcastic like her facial expression was. Literally all about duality. And that's one of the reasons why I bring up the gothic, because um, I, I think a, 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 fu- a fundamental like emotional experience of reading gothic fiction or or any type of horror is that yeah, you get you get the fear, but you also get the pleasure. There's this sort of sublime transcendence of of the negative feeling that I think we really like. It's like it's becoming Halloween right now, and it's spooky, but it's also exciting. It's how those two things live within us that's really gets the adrenaline pumping. Damn, you smart about Batman. Ooh, you Batman smart. I I also think the one other thing I'd add to why Batman because he's fucking Batman. Because he's fucking Batman. And I think at the end of the day, that is the only argument we need. It might not be the argument we deserve, (laughs) but it's the only argument we actually need. Batman is awesome. Yeah. Just hands down. You know, like he's got the coolest shit. He does the coolest things. I think that is just a, a, just a, he's just, because he's been popular, I think the best comic book writers and the best comic book artists were drawn to it, which then drew the best animators for animated series like Batman, the animated series, the best filmmakers, Tim Burton, Christopher Nolan, you know, have tried to really like sink Joel their Schumacher. Teeth. Yeah. Who he, no, he, <laughs> I, I'm pretty certain that's a figment of your imagination. There is yeah, no totally. Joel Schumacher, Batman, but no, no. I mean, I digress. It it's immense popularity has like garnered some of the best creative minds to work with the character. And I wonder just on other like last point here, there are some economics at play. Oh yeah. You know, that Batman made money. So the best creative people go to where the money is because they're trying to get paid and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not at all trying to disparage the comic book writers who tackled Batman and made a lot of money. That's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, Yeah. That's awesome. Like I wish I were making your money. That's fantastic. But I think that's a part of it too. That for sure. That it then becomes a an engine of content designed for us to purchase said content. And I mean it's a large part of why Disney spent billions on buying Star Wars because there is an engine there. There's enough fans, it's been good enough that if you do a good job with it, we're going to be there and we're going to give our money for it and that's okay because we get more Batman. Amazing. Yeah. Friends, uh, please join Derek and Beth and company uh, Sundays in October at Moore College of Art and Design for the Batman the Animated Series rewatch. Uh, we we tried to, to do justice to Batman tonight, and in the end, there is so much to mine and so much to unpack. You got to just join us Sundays in October for lots more theorizing and nerding out about this amazing, timeless character. 
Uh, and we'll definitely put more information on social. And we will probably follow this one up with a blog because I think we have a lot more to say about Batman, too. True story. If you check our blog out now, there's already a That's Batman true. blog there. Yeah. It's called Everything is Batman. Yeah. All right. Shall we move to the game? Let's move to the game. Okay. So, Laurel, do your thing. Every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we like to play a little game to have fun with some of the characters and situations we've been talking about. We would love for you to play along at home. So if you're listening, please check us out on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Visit us on Facebook, search The Midnight Myth Podcast, or drop us a line on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. So for this week's game, it's very simple. Of the many, many iterations of Batman, outside of the original comic books, that is, mostly the filmic and TV adaptations, which iteration of Batman is the best and why? Oh, man, it's a huge question. I'm going to go out here and say all answers are correct. Yeah, no, there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. When you say best, you're really saying your favorite in this argument. Yeah. And you could make maybe some objective arguments about better here and better there, but they're nitpicking. Um, So I think whatever anyone wants to say, their best version of non-comic book Batman. And um, I'm going to go with, and maybe I'm biased because of the work I've been doing lately, Kevin Conroy, who's the voice of Batman and Batman the Animated Series. Word. I'm going to go with that because... He is the first uh, actor to play Batman who decided to play Batman in two different voices, one as Bruce Wayne and one as Batman, which is now a staple of how we think of Batman, who modulates and changes his voice, Um, so much so that we've seen that ever since. And I think there was something to how he did the voice of Bruce Wayne where he really nailed Bruce Wayne and not as like a... like like just a total billionaire, superficial playboy. He played Bruce Wayne that there was a lot of depth to his Bruce Wayne, even though the real person is still Batman. And then every Batman line he ever spoke, I think he nailed. And Batman is easy to to do simply and really difficult to do complexly because when he puts on the suit, he becomes, for lack of a better term, emotionally stoic. And to put emotion into your Batman voice, uh, the way way that this uh, voice actor was able to do, I still think is unmatched in in Batman's. And and granted, there's a thousand counter arguments to every argument that I made, but, and I just rewatched all of Batman, the animated series. So he's really fresh in my mind. So that's coloring it as well. You know, I'm just pretty certain that I know it's not George Clooney. No. Uh, Good answer. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more holistically than just the actor, um, because like I said, I experienced Batman kind of as a package with the city that gave birth to him. Um, And so as you should. Yeah. uh, So this is kind of funny because as much as I love Lego Batman and the Nolan Batmans and Michael Keaton. I also wanted to go with Batman, the animated series as my favorite iteration of Batman. Nice. And that's because I think, um, that's a tie. Yeah. I think because of course it's taking a lot of inspiration from the style of, uh, the Tim Burton films and everything that came before. I think that the animated series, um, best manifests 
the expressionism that I talked about and best manifests Batman's relationship to Gotham. Um, I think that the way that the Art Deco style and the film noir style work together with the sort of inner conflict of that character while never really beating you over the head with it is the most emotionally effective version of Batman that I have seen. Um, And this is divorcing it kind of from the like really intense storytelling of the Nolan ones, the, the like Batman Joker back and forth with Heath Ledger and whatnot. I just think based on my impression of it, like I go to a million different places with the inspiration behind the animated series. And I think that uh, every argument that you made about Kevin Conroy fits perfectly in there. I think he did beautiful, beautiful work with that character. You know, I just realized this really isn't a game as much as it's another podcast topic. Oh my God. Of which I know. Batman version. Like there's no game here. Like yeah. and every argument's a winning argument. But I would love to hear uh, our listeners takes on so this. So you took it as the best Batman, like Batman, yeah. like proper, like the bigger world of yeah. Batman. See, I took it as Batman individual performance. Totally. And it's interesting that we great. we landed in the no same wrong answer. Yeah, we yeah. landed in the same spot. You know, I would also say that like I think Christopher Nolan built a great Batman world. He really did. He really truly did. And yeah. as much as The Dark Knight Rises is problematic in terms of its narrative structure, it is probably Christopher Nolan's worst movie in my not so humble opinion. Yeah. Um it still was like imagine if that was the first Batman movie of the Christopher Nolans was the Dark Knight Rises. Everyone would have loved it. Yeah. And we've lost our fucking minds. We're like, we couldn't understand Bane, but who cares? It was awesome. Yeah, because Christopher Nolan is the shit, and he did things with Batman that were really unexpected and still fit with the greater canon of that character in that world. Right. My only problem with the Dark Knight Rises to me was that there were two better movies before it, and the third movie exactly. kind of yeah. can't be the worst. Yeah. You know, that, that, that just makes the third movie look so much worse than maybe it actually was total other like topic for another podcast. <laughs> another I'm podcast having trouble wrapping this day. up because we're talking about fucking Batman. Come see us talk about Batman at more college this Sunday, next Sunday and the following Sunday. And, uh, if you come and you are a midnight myth fan, there might be a special prize for you. Whoa. Until next time. There's no price. Be kind. Be kind. <laughs>